Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, as Ryan said, good morning and um, thrilled to have you this morning. If you're new here, uh, first time, I want to especially welcome you. And as always, if uh, we say anything, and perhaps we will, that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, if we can help you answer those questions, we'll stick around and do that. But we'd love to meet you this morning. We'll be up here after the service. Um, you can turn with me now to John chapter 17 in your Bibles or in your order of worship. Um, we're moving through John, the end part of John, uh, finishing it up from last spring where we left off in 13. And this is our third week in this prayer. I mentioned it last week, but this is the longest recorded prayer that we have from Jesus in the New Testament. It's actually the longest prayer at all we have in the New Testament. The occasion of this prayer, you'll see it next week if you're with us, is this is the night of his arrest. So if you kind of know the order, it's the eve of his death, his crucifixion. And um, in John's gospel, um, after this prayer is over, the events really start picking up in speed. And so we go right from betrayal to arrest to trial to crucifixion. The, the prayer is set apart in that way. Um, it's a slowdown in John's gospel. In some ways, it reveals to us that as Jesus goes on to face this, his greatest trial, his greatest test, um, his greatest act of faithfulness before the Father, what will empower him for that work? It is his own communion with God. Spends time um, communing with his Father who is in heaven. Instructive for us this morning as well. We can outline the prayer this way. The first five verses are Jesus praying for himself. If you want to start at the top of the mountain, that's how it starts. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples who are with him. If you remember, he is praying that his mission through them might be continued in the world. We looked at that last week. And then verses 20 through 26, where we'll find ourselves this morning, is Jesus praying for all those who will become the fruit of their mission. So all believers across denominations, across ages, all still to come. I just want to note that pattern. Jesus, the apostles, to all believers... Because that is the pattern that we still experience in the Christian life. The glory of Jesus, that glory made known through his apostles, through the apostolic word, and then all of the benefits of his gospel, all the benefits of him, his glory for us, flowing from him through them down to us. Every time we read the Bible, we experience the pattern of this prayer. For our young disciples this morning, just a question for you to think about as we close out this prayer. What will help the world to know and believe the truth about Jesus? What does Jesus say here that will help the world to know and believe the truth that God has sent him, that he is the sent one from God? If you're able, I'd ask you to stand now for the reading of God's holy word. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Let's read together. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we do pray that this, the prayer of your son, would be realized in us, that we would, we would see the visibility of the communion that we share with you, in you, with believers across all time and space. Lord, would you help form us now from the burden that Jesus has expressed in this prayer to be more and more like him. We pray in his name. Amen. So I had a friend, I moved here from Dallas. I had a friend in Dallas with a teenage daughter and he had this routine whenever his daughter was asked out on a first date. Only a first date, mind you. This was his routine. First, he would insist that the young man come to their house to pick his daughter up. So no just meeting up anywhere, got to come to the house, got to do the courageous thing, come to the house and walk to the front door. Second, he insisted that he would be the one to greet the young man at the door. No one else, but that he would begin the meeting face to face before the date began. Third, he made sure upon the greeting that, that he would lighten the mood. Ask questions about the young man, enjoy some friendly banner, basically engage him in small talk while they just kind of waited for his daughter. Put him at ease. And then when his daughter and the young man were ready to embark on their date, as they exited the house, he would gently pull the young man aside and say, it is so great to meet you. I hope you all have a great time. I just want you to remember tonight that I am not afraid to go back to prison. And with that, he would send them off. Now, my friend had never been to prison, uh, but the effect of those final words ideally was to say, you have an obligation to treat my daughter, not according to your own desires and pleasures tonight, but according to mine. So I want you to carry with you tonight the gravity of my love for her, and I want you to treat her accordingly. The final words here of Jesus' upper room discourses that have been going on since John 13 probably should have something of that effect on us. His heart is expressed here for those whom he loves, for those whom, once again, we see in this passage, he considers a gift, a precious gift from the Father for his church. And we have an obligation as those within that relationship, within that membership, Not to treat the church or not to treat his people as the object of our own desires, but to take up and to carry forward and to share the burden of what Jesus wants most for his people. We should always be asking the question, how can we as his people best reflect his heart in the church? And then how can I as an individual work toward making that happen? Now to be sure, there are a lot of ways to talk about that. We could use words like holiness, uh, love, truth, grace. And, And those are all words that are in this prayer. But this morning, the word that should find its way into our vocabulary for what Jesus wants most for his people is this word oneness or unity. You see it over and over again. For example, verse 21, that they may all be one. That is all. Again, across time and space, across denomination, 
everyone that belongs to him would be one, just as we are one. So we're gonna look at that together this morning, the unity that Jesus prays for, and we're gonna look at it this way. First of all, I wanna talk about the unity that he talks about here that we can't see. The unity that we can't see, the unity that is true, that has been achieved, that is objective, even though we can't always see it. Second, the unity that we should see. The unity that we should in fact pursue visibly that reflects Jesus' heart, that the world should see. And then finally, the unity that we will see. The unity that will be perfected, the unity that is heaven itself, the unity that is the end of the journey of the Christian life. The unity we can't see, we should see, and the unity that we will, in fact, one day see. Let's look at those three things in turn. First of all, the unity that we can't see. Look with me again, that first verse at verse 20. We'll just read that again together. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only. Remember, these only, that's a reference to the disciples who are with him in that upper room but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is the mark of a Christian. All those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, we, we do this a lot, and, and you know, we, we could do it this morning. We could say a lot of things about the marks of those or the description of those who believe in Jesus as he has offered to us in the gospel. We talk about the fruit of that belief being that we are forgiven. We hear it every week in our confession of sin. We are forgiven. We are declared righteous in him. Our shame is lifted. The embarrassment has been covered. We have the joy of living before God with integrity. Ryan said it again this morning, we have a new heart inside of us, one that is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and we have the power to walk in a new life. And all those would be accurate descriptions of what it means to believe or what it means to to have the fruit of believing in our life. But here's a really important way, perhaps even a culminating way, to talk about what is true of all those who believe in Jesus through his word. That we are actually brought into union with God. We are brought into union with God. As the Father is in Jesus, think about that. As the Father is in Jesus, and Jesus is in the Father, Jesus says here, so we are in them. So what he's saying is that we're actually brought into the fellowship of the Godhead. We are not made gods, but we are brought spiritually into that joy and intimacy that is eternally the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are not merely adjacent to that fellowship. It's not like we get in the auditorium but have you know, sort of back row seats somewhere in the upper deck. We have floor seats. We are brought all the way into full access on the inside of that fellowship. And that bond is as strong as the bond that is shared between the Father and the Son. Listen to me, that is true whether you feel it or not. In the same way that your DNA is true regarding your lineage, whether you feel close to your parents or not, the bond is objective and it is true. In fact, you'll remember earlier in the prayer, we looked at this last week, Jesus prayed that his disciples would be kept how, do you remember? Would be kept in his name. A name in the ancient world, still true today, was the full force of a person's integrity and reputation. We talk about this, we stand behind our names. 
We sign our names to important documents. We sign our checks with our names, right? We sign restaurant bills, their names. We're saying we agree to stand behind what we've done. I'm good for it. The union, the closeness, the intimacy, the acceptance, the relationship that we have with God has the full force of Jesus' integrity and reputation behind it. It is not based on your name or how you feel. It is the name of Jesus that is our bond. And it is also his name that defines the bond that we share with each other as believers. Again, whether you see it, whether you feel it, whether you experience it or not, you have a deeper bond with a Christian rice farmer in Malaysia than you do with an unbelieving neighbor who looks like you and talks like you and shares your lifestyle. That is as true as the name of Jesus. One more way to think about this in terms of the unity that we don't see. And I just, full disclosure, it's been very, very important for me. Do you remember that line in the Apostles' Creed? We just said this last week. He said, I believe in the Holy Ghost. Some of us say Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Ghost. The what? The Holy Catholic Church. And then what? The communion of saints. And what does that mean? It means that we are professing our belief that we are bonded in Christ with all believers, even those who have preceded us in death. We don't see that bond. We often don't feel that bond exists. In fact, it's just the opposite. It looks and feel like that is a bond that is severed by death. But if the integrity of the name of Jesus is an integrity that's been vindicated by his resurrection, then that bond holds. It holds as sure as the fact that death could not hold him. We don't see the oneness. We don't always see the communion. We don't see the unity, but it is more real than your own experience of it. And praise God for that. Paul in Ephesians 2 says this, we are one body in one spirit with one Lord. Sometimes I think Paul is insulting our intelligence just over and over. One faith, one baptism, one God, one Father who is over all and through all and in all. And from that, Paul writes this, then be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So now the unity we should see. Looking back at the text, we can assume that our unity should be visible because Jesus assumes here that our unity will have some impact on the world, right? Verses 21 and 23, how will the world believe that the Father has sent the Son? They will see the love between the Father and the Son coming to expression in us so that the message we declare will become visible in our life together as his followers. You say, what does that mean practically? Well, first of all, in order of priority, we should assume that our unity would be made visible in how we relate to Jesus. You get that? It's not just a social unity. If our unity begins with him, then he is always experientially our first priority to realizing that unity anywhere else. And Jesus has basically already said this to the disciples, perhaps an hour before this, I don't know, the timeline's off a little bit maybe, but they've been together for the whole night. John 15, I am the vine, you are the what? The branches, right? Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. 
And so you must abide, that's a continual present. You must abide in me. In other words, you must live dependently upon me. And so our unity actually becomes visible by our lived dependence on Jesus all the time. The world needs to see that in the church. That we're not just a people who show up at worship. We come to worship expectantly because we need him and we want him. We don't just pray when we have time. We pray not just because it's something that Christians should do. We pray because we want to spend time with them. We don't just obey God's word to satisfy our consciences and somehow to posture ourselves and to feel good about ourselves. We obey his word because we see in his word the shape of our love for him and the shape of his love for us. The world needs to see that Jesus is alive, that he is alive in the church, that he is alive to us, he is alive in us, and by seeing that, that he is more precious to us than anything else, that we'd consecrate our whole lives around him, even when it hurts, when it's costly for us. Our unity is first of all made visible in how we relate to him. Second, our unity is made visible in how we relate to one another. So Jesus doesn't get into details here. Paul is often left with the charge of like fleshing out the gospel. And if you go back and read any of his 13 epistles written mostly to local churches, you could take note of how often Paul talks about unity or relational harmony among Christians. And the pattern of Paul's epistles is something like this. We always talk about it as indicative and imperative. It doesn't always hold up, but it's basically good enough. Paul is always saying, Jesus loves you. You don't know how much he loves you. Let me tell you how much he loves you. This is how he loves you. This is true of you, yada, yada. So, so quit doing dumb stuff and get along. It's worse than that on some occasions. The Apostle Paul has a deep burden for explaining the gospel in terms of this prayer of our unity made visible and how we relate to one another in the local church and then across local churches. And so to that end, let me give you two quick takeaways that we find Paul talking about over and over again in those 13 epistles. The first is this, Paul is always urging Christians to pursue unity by repairing relationships in the church that are broken. By making sure those relationships that are broken in the church get repaired. And Paul says it in Romans 13, as far as you are able. So you hear things like this, 1 Corinthians 13, that we are not to keep a record of wrongs. Ephesians 4, we're supposed to, in the community, forgive as Christ forgave us. Galatians 6, we are supposed to seek and do our best to restore those who are caught up in sin. Romans, again, we are not supposed to quarrel over opinions. We're not supposed to quarrel over opinions. Romans, again, the strong has an obligation to bear with the anxieties and the preferences of the weak. Paul says, as far as you are able, you have to make this unity visible by repairing relationships with other Christians so that we can live with the peace that Jesus has granted to us. Blessed are the peacemakers. Second, Paul is always urging churches to embrace the diversity of God's people over and over and over again. The diversity, first of all, of our gifts. Corinthians, Ephesians, Romans, people are gifted in different ways. And of course we would do this, this called some in those communities 
to value the greater, the, the greater gifts and to look down upon those with the lesser gifts. And Paul basically says, don't do that. You need all the gifts. No one has all the gifts. Only Jesus has all the gifts. And so embrace the diversity of giftedness in the church because you need each other's gifts. Paul writes then about the diversity of ages. So you'll see this, for example, in the pastoral letters where he says, you know what, old men, older men, sorry, no one would put yourself in that category, right? Old men. Mentor, love, care for younger men. Younger men, respect, learn from, take in the wisdom of. Older men don't look down upon younger men. The same goes for older women to younger women as well. And children, Paul has, has a, has a, says every, everybody has a role. Embrace the diversity of ages even within your church. You need each other. And then finally, there's probably more than this, Paul writes about the diversity of lineage or of culture. Hard to, hard to find a letter where he is not addressing the cultural problem between Jews and Gentiles, the ethnic problems of his day. And Paul says, you know what, they have a, they have a history to overcome. It's a long history, it's a history replete with division and hostility, there was no love lost, but Paul tells them that they have a better story to live. That you this morning have a better history in Christ than the history of any single culture. And it's not a history that ever washes over or erases those cultural distinctions, but that transcends them and it binds us to one another and we need each other in order to live how God has called us to live. So I want you to imagine this with me for a moment. Imagine Christians, even just in Nashville, like getting along really well. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now, imagine Christians in Nashville, just locally, loving each other deeply and transparently with forgiveness in the way that Christ has forgiven us. Wouldn't that even be better? And then imagine, not just that, but treating one another as brothers and sisters people with whom we have absolutely nothing else in common but Jesus. In fact, on occasion, people who have reasons to despise one another except for Jesus. Would that not be an incredible testimony to the world that Jesus is in fact real? That he really is in us and that he really is through us and that we really are in him? I want you to listen to what the church historian Michael Green writes about the powerful witness of the early church, first 200 years, he says this. Here were associations in which aristocrats and slaves, Roman citizens and provincials, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, men and women, they mixed on equal terms. In other words, they all got down on one knee to confess their sin. They all mixed in the pews. Here were societies that possessed a quality of care outside the pews and love that amazed and attracted those who saw it. It was a harmony that demonstrated something of the unity and diversity of the God they worshiped. And it was only in such a community that manifestly or made visible could convince the visiting observer that God was indeed among them. I hope what you hear this morning is this is not unity for unity's sake. This is unity with Jesus at the center. 
It is unity in Christ. It is unity in his truth by which we are to be sanctified. It is unity in his grace. It is unity in his love. And it's not just for the world. As the psalmist says, it is good and pleasant when brothers and sisters experience this, when they dwell together in unity. Do you know that? It is good for us. And what it opens up for us even now is a taste of the world to come. It is the unity that we will also see briefly. So verses 23 through 26, Jesus prays for the perfection of our unity. And that is connected in verse 23 to his desire for us to be with him where he is going in the Father's presence, where he says, we will see his glory, the glory of creation now in consummation. We will see that glory together. And the love in verse 26 is which the Father has loved us, excuse me, loved the Son, it will be perfected in that community. And what I want to tell you this morning is that is the world. That is the world into which Jesus is bringing his people. And in this passage, that world is a prayer. The following day on the cross, that world will become an achievement. Three days after that in the resurrection, that world will become our assurance. 40 days later, when Jesus ascends to heaven and pours out his spirit, that world, the vision of that world becomes our mission. So that until then, until someday in a future that is only known to God, Jesus will return in the world he describes in verses 23 through 26, the prayer that he offers there will be answered. And that world will become the only world we will know. And John sees it. He writes about it here, but he sees it later in the book of Revelation. And what he sees of what will be is that sin will be no more. That death itself will die. That our bodies will be raised to immortality. And he sees that every tribe and tongue and nation will gather around the throne of Jesus and by the light of his glory and his glory alone, there is no moon or, star or sun there. We will walk and we will live and we will worship and we will feast together into eternity. That is our faith. Unity right now is not something we can take or leave any more than those other words are. Holiness and love and grace and truth. It is the heart of our king. It's the heart of our king. It is the reconciliation that he gave himself or offered himself on the cross to effect and it is our burden joyfully to carry with us. May the world, when they walk in here, see how we relate to each other, may they taste something of that that is good to them and that convinces them that the Son is the one whom God has sent. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for for loving us and for holding this before us. We thank you that you prayed this for us, that you gave yourself up to reconcile us to God and to destroy every dividing wall and hostility between one another. And Lord, we do pray for the humility and the courage, the wisdom Lord, not to dismiss this, but to see it made visible both here in this local church and in our relationship with other Christians in other churches around this city and around the world. 
Would you help us to mirror your heart in just praying for it first? And then, Father, would you show us, would you teach us what it means to move out as those who have your heart within us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantprez.com.